0: Has your fuse box gone haywire? Is your water pressure too weak? Or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade? They don't last forever, you know. Well, the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that. So if you're locked out on a Thursday and need a locksmith, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. DNC's apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details. Now on Documentary on News Talk, producer Brian Gallagher explores the lives of those who live, work, study, and relax in the vicinity of Ireland's National Botanic Gardens. In the documentary, The Bots. <laughs>
1: It first opened in 1795 and today, it's Ireland's second most visited free attraction. It's set in 50 acres of beautiful grounds, yet located only 5 kilometres from Dublin city centre. It's home to 20,000 living plants and a vast number of dried plant specimens. It's the National Botanic Gardens. Let's meet some of the wide range of people who live, work, study and relax there.
2: I have to say, it's a lovely place to go. They're feeling a bit down. <laughs> If you just go and wander around and see then you can sit down or you can have an ice cream if you had the money. We're always open to new, exciting ways of engaging the visitor.
3: One of the real pleasures of this job is I wake up at work every morning. You know, it makes it a real pleasure that I don't waste my time on a commute anymore like I used to do.
4: We have archives, art and rare books collection. Our rare books collection extends back to the 1530s.
5: Our back garden is about an acre and it backs onto the botanic gardens and the cemetery. Our neighbours are just basically the cemetery people and plants.
2: People thought it was exclusively for gardeners and then other people thought it was just exclusively as a big park. And we try to explain what the importance of the gardens are. I'd say the first place we made
6: for was the glass house. And we'd go up to the glass house and we'd get in and when you went in the heat would just hit you. And that was quite amazing because in those days, remember, we didn't have central heating at home. So that was super.
7: I was particularly interested in women's role in medicine in history and how that wise women, people like biddy early characters like that, who really understood the local flora and treated people who had a variety of ailments.
8: I know it's something that we're very proud of, that link with the pub, the cemetery, the botanics. It's a magic triangle. It is like the Bermuda Triangle because you do disappear in that triangle in Glasnevin. And then before you know it, four hours have passed. It's magic. It's just magic.
1: Dr. Matthew Jebb, the director of the Botanic Gardens, takes us behind the scenes. Each year we have about 500 to 600,000 visitors.
3: You know, we are free entry and have been for much of our existence. So, yes, it does account for our popularity, but the fact that we are such an intensively managed collection of plants, we are completely different from your average public park. Here is a place where you can see an astonishing range of plants. It'll be the biggest collection of living plants in the island of Ireland and that is what makes it so attractive to a visitor.
1: In 1845, the potato harvest in Ireland was affected by blight, leading to the Great Famine, by the end of which approximately one million people had died and another million had emigrated. Dr. David Moore was the director of the Botanic Gardens at the time, and it was through research carried out in the gardens at Glasnevin that he first identified the fungus that caused the infection. Today, research is still an important part of the work carried out at the Botanic Gardens, as Matthew Jebb explains.
3: There are now about 300 species of plant around the world which are extinct in the wild, but we're still growing them in Botanic Gardens, and it underlines the importance of a botanic garden acting like a Noah's Ark for plants.
1: One plant in particular occupies a special place in the great palm house in Glasnevin.
3: What's amazing about this particular species, he's called Encephalatus woodyi, and I call him he because he's only been discovered once in history and he's a male plant. So no female has ever been found of this species. So it is literally the last surviving male of its kind and because there is no female there is nobody for him to breed with so technically he is already extinct as a species but we have him growing here he's been alive in our collection for 115 years so we bought him for five pounds back in 1905 the question is how do you save a species like this that doesn't have a female in existence and what they've already started doing is breeding him with females of the closest living species. It's the most similar species. And those offspring might take 50 to 100 years before they produce their cone in turn and and potentially seeds. So over the next 300 to 400 years, they hope to breed the species back into existence.
1: Leaving the tropical atmosphere of the Great Palm House, we go to another important area for study.
3: Right, Brian, we are now in the herbarium A herbarium, quite sort of strange to people, but every day people use the word aquarium and it's literally a Latin phrase. Aquarium means a little room full of water, like a fish tank. A herbarium is a room full of dried plants. Herba being the Latin word for a plant. So the herbarium, we have got a collection in here of 600,000 Pressed, dried specimens of plants. And they provide us with one of the most fantastic resources of being able to identify a plant. I can actually refer to the herbarium where we have got
1: these 600,000 labelled and named specimens. But who provides the herbarium with its specimens? In part, it's people like Declan Duke. Well, I'm one of these botanists who people used to call an amateur botanist, but I
9: prefer to use bona fide botanist nowadays because we're in many ways we're, we've got a fairly high standard of botanical recording and everything else, but we're doing it in a voluntary capacity. So the place here is fantastic in the sense that an awful lot of the original specimens that were collected here in the herbarium were actually collected by people like myself. Three, four, five generations back, it goes all the way back. In fact, botanical recording in Dublin started in about 1726. And we've, people have been doing that ever since. But the great thing is that because there are physical specimens around, you can actually verify them. So, if, for example, I'm looking at a botanical record that was created by somebody in 1800 or 1850, I can come back in
1: here and
9: the specimen may physically be still here, available for examination.
1: Some of the specimens have come from far afield, as Matthew Jebb explains. Here is a specimen
3: collected in the 1880s in central China by an Irishman, Dr. Augustine Henry. And that specimen is really as fresh as the day it was pressed. 140 years ago, it's been dried out. And the point of that specimen is it is superior to a description or a photograph because I can actually put those leaves under a microscope and those can be examined in microscopic detail and they can assist with the identification of the species.
1: But the botanists who do this work first have to be attracted to their field of study. I asked Declan Dug. What drew him in? I was no good at football. <laughs> That's
9: about it. It's as simple as that. The school that I was in, I was in a local school here. I wasn't even particularly good at school. I was all right at school, but it wasn't great at school. The motivation is, in some way or other, you feel as if you're part of that participative process where people are genuinely concerned about the state of the country and they see the plants or the insects or the butterflies or the bees or various other things as being symbolic of the state of the environment. These things tell us things of the continuity of habitat type, but the, the value of that is that it actually produces evidence, hard evidence, of the state of the environment then, the state of the environment now, and the you can identify what the drivers of that change were.
1: The area surrounding the Botanic Gardens is busy today, and its once rural aspect has altered, as Dublin suburbs spread and neighbouring sites were built upon. The Bon Secours Hospital opened in 1951 on a site once owned by Patrick Delaney and his wife Mary to whose house Jonathan Swift was a frequent visitor. Met Aaron moved into custom-built offices on nearby Glasnevin Hill in 1975 while the Holy Faith Convent School and Enterprise Ireland also operate nearby. Playing is an important part of childhood and for Blondet Farrell, who grew up almost next door, the botanic gardens were a draw.
6: As children, we'd go into the botanics and as you know, you couldn't run around and go wild. But I'd say the first place we made for was the glass house. And we'd go up to the glass house and we'd get in. And when you went in, the heat would just hit you. And that was quite amazing because in those days, remember, we didn't have central heating at home. So that was super and then you'd come out the herbaceous border was pretty famous which didn't mean much to us and we'd go down the hill up to the rock garden and the rock garden had lots of little trails in and out through it now that was about the only place you could have maybe a little game of chasing or something like that and the patch of ground following that was where we would have called the playground there were no contraptions in it or anything it was just plain grass but you could put a rug out and sit on it and play a little bit of ball. No football or anything like that.
1: But the fact that ball games were forbidden didn't discourage people, as Blonnet recalls.
6: At the weekends, like there was a huge amount of visitors came to the botanics or the bots, as we knew them. And certainly on a good summer's day, the shops in the area, they would be sold out of ice cream.
1: So what sort of ice cream generated this demand?
6: Penny a wafer and a twopenny wafer, and then there was the the big sixpenny wafer, which was about an inch and a half thick. But the shops we sold out of ice cream.
1: While running out of ice cream was bad, there were benefits for Blonnet's family in living so close to the gardens.
6: Pa- both my parents were very keen gardeners. They got many a tip from the gardeners in the botanics and you'd see the rose garden and certainly at a particular time of the year there'd be a constant watch on that garden to see when the roses be pruned and the minute they were pruned in the gardens they were pruned in our house.
1: Leaving behind the hurly-burly of children playing and shops running out of ice cream we move to the calm of the library that's based in the botanic gardens. Librarian Alexandra Kakamo explains its purpose.
4: The role of the library really is to serve the staff and the students of the gardens, but also to the general public as well. So it's a national collection. So everybody is welcome to come and use the collection. If you have a query about botany or horticulture, anything at all really related to plants, you're more than welcome to come here. So our collection consists of books and magazines and journals that are just on the shelves, available for anyone to take off and have a read. But also we have archives, art, and um, rare books collection. So our rare books collection extends back to the 1530s. Um, So our oldest book is from the 1530s.
1: And what sort of people use the library?
4: Most people that come in here will be botanists or horticulturalists, but we do have novelists coming in and artists. So we've had people who wanted to research orchid collecting in the 1800s so you might be getting out books on orchids but also items from our collection art from our collection that relates to orchids so that they can get an overview people who come in our users are quite varied they're not only people who are interested just in plants
1: i asked alexandra about the role of art in the library
4: well botanical art has always kind of gone hand in hand with botany so prior to photographs it would have been the way to record have a visual record of your collections and so Lydia Shackleton was a botanical artist who worked for the gardens for 23 years so she worked with one of our former directors so at the time there would have been photographs but they would have been black and white they wouldn't have had the detail that painting would have had and also botanical illustration can show things that a photograph can't so you can see sometimes artist will show the front of a flower, the back of a flower, they'll dissect the flower and show enlargements. They sometimes will show a flower over a whole season all on the one page. So they're things that a photograph can't necessarily convey in the same way. So that's why practically every botanical library will have some kind of collection of botanical art.
1: Traditionally, the director of the Botanic Gardens has lived on site in a beautiful period house, a park that appeals to current director, Matthew Jebb. One of the real pleasures of this
3: job is I wake up at work every morning. It does mean that I can spend time contemplating the collection out of ours and in ours. Living here, some people feel, gosh, that must be very confining and, and you feel overlooked, but it doesn't at all. You know, I feel very happy in our isolated house here. And it's a pleasure to actually chat to people at any time during the week or at weekends. And I often will engage in conversations with visitors because that is one of the best ways to understand how well is your site working. The director has always lived there. It of course predates the gardens, So it was built almost 70 years before the gardens. The house itself, when it was first constructed, one of its first residents was Thomas Tickell. Thomas Tickell was appointed in the beginning of the 18th century as the secretary to the Lord's Chief Justices. So Thomas Tickell had a very nice life. He would have woken up here each morning and he would have ridden his horse down to King's Inn, where the judiciary would have sat. It's no more than two miles ride. And his little estate here formed the foundations of the gardens. So we are embedded in the history of this part of Dublin and Thomas Tickell as one of the first dwellers here, his garden, his little estate, would have been the foundation, the, the original sort of nucleus of the Botanic Gardens.
4: It's too darn hot. It's too darn hot. I'd like
6: to
1: For many people, their abiding memory of the Botanic Gardens is the wall of heat they felt on entering the glass houses. I asked Brendan Sayers about their hottest location.
10: The Palm House would be the one that would get to the highest temperature. So we would have maybe 85 degrees would be the highest temperature that you'd get there. And a lot of that would be boosted by just solar energy. So on a very warm summer's day, the temperature would mainly be just by sunlight alone. In winter we would boost it up, but we would also keep a slightly lower temperature. We might only have at 75 degree maximum in the houses during the winter because due to where we are in the world our plants actually have stopped growing a bit because of low light levels. We don't really want to be getting them to grow too much.
1: This ecologically aware approach applies to all the work done by Brandon and his colleagues.
10: So our buildings are heated by natural gas and we must be very conscious that in a time where not only are the gardens trying to demonstrate the diversity of plant life but also that there is a great need to address the change in climate. So what would be considered the recommended minimum temperatures for each of the houses, we have dropped one degree below that. And in certain collections that can sustain no heating during the summer, the heating will be burnt off to those houses. So it's trying to create a balance between what is the necessities of looking after something that is a great educational tool but also then to make sure that we are conscious and that we can defend our actions.
1: Tours are an important part of the experience at the Botanic Gardens. As Charlotte Salter Townsend explains.
7: We do quite a variety of tours. We do our general tours every day of the week. And we also offer themed tours, which tend to change each month. It can be themed on the time of year. For example, we have our Halloween and Valentine's Day tours. But we also explore a variety of topics. It could be historical or it could be to do with biodiversity or even the effects of the gardens on people. For example, our biophilia tours are some of our most popular ones so the concept of biophilia was developed by a ecologist called E.O. Wilson, and the term itself means love of life. And so he took the idea to refer to the way that people are a part of nature, not apart from nature. And so we have this inherent need and desire to be close to nature and to spend time in a place like the Botanic Gardens has a great effect on your overall mood. and We actually explore that on this tour where we try to engage different senses, for example sense of smell and touch. But we also talk about a lot of the scientific studies that actually show the effects of nature on our well-being and on society as well.
1: Charlotte also does a tour on medicine and plants.
7: I was particularly interested in women's role in medicine in history and how that was very important early on and how it evolved so i talk a bit on this tour about wise women people like biddy early characters like that who really understood the local flora and treated people who had a variety of ailments so when you think back to the 19th century in ireland the vast majority of people lived in Rural areas, they didn't have access to doctors or hospitals, so if someone took ill, the person they'd go to would be a local wise woman or wise man who knew the local plants and how to administer them. And we have a wonderful area of the gardens called Wild Ireland, so we have a good representation there. So I'm able to bring people there, talk about a history, about what it was like in the past, and to pick out certain plants and show them and tell them about how they were used.
1: And what better way to relax before or after a tour than with coffee, tea, or even a full meal? It's all activity in the cafe, which caters for thousands of customers each year. Glyn Anderson, the head guide, takes up the point when I asked him about visitor numbers.
11: In terms of the numbers in the gardens, We have gone over 600,000 now uh, last year, so that's quite a lot of people coming in the gate. Not all of them come on a guided tour, but they're all in here and they're walking around and some of them are looking for something to eat.
1: So what choices are available to visitors to the gardens
11: when they want refreshments? The restaurant itself, you can get full meals in there, pretty much anything you want, a nice piece of cake and um, sandwiches and soup and that kind of thing. The smaller canteen then, is a little bit smaller, um, you'll get your, your small snacks and your soup and sandwiches and that kind of thing. I asked Glynn
1: if they grew food in the vegetable garden for consumption in the restaurant.
11: It's a common question, unfortunately we don't. To do that we'd need to be growing stuff on, on much higher quantities. And it's not really, that's not really what it's there for. It's there as a display garden to show people what the stuff looks like and how it grows and that sort of thing. So the short answer is no, we don't. Um, we get a lot of people come in, kids and that sort of thing. Mightn't have ever seen a vegetable grown in the ground and it's, it's there to teach them all about the veg, you know.
1: So do the botanic staff dine on site?
11: They do a, a few of them will use the big cafe. most of them will use the smaller canteen. Uh, they'll go there for their breaks in the morning, and some of them will have their lunch there as well. so yeah, they do absolutely yeah.
1: And Glenn's favorite
11: dish um I love gee, I don't know. I, I love their dinners. their full dinners. sometimes uh, if you don't get a chance to get a, a proper meat and two veg dinner, and they, they do really nice stuff in there. they do half a chicken in there sometimes, which is. Probably one of my favorites, yeah.
5: You will always be my necessity like a restaurant with a recipe. You the lace in my shoe I'd be lost without you.
0: You're listening to the bots on documentary on News Talk.
1: We asked people to recall the first thing they ever grew. Sphagnum
3: moss. I know that sounds extraordinary, but I remember the first time I saw sphagnum moss growing in a little bog, the thrill of that and wanting to grow it in a little pot of water thereafter. And that is one of my earliest memories.
2: I think it was some kind of a daisy. I'm not sure of the name of it now. It's for a border, beautiful, and I had it all along the back wall.
11: Somebody gave me a copy of a book called The Pip Book when I was just going into my teens and it got my whole interest in plants going and I started gathering pips from apples and oranges and exotic things, sticking them in the ground or sticking them in the pot and there's a delight then in seeing what comes up and what it's gonna look like. So that's those are my first plants, fruit.
2: Can I remember the first thing I ever picked? I used to live beside a field and I picked bluebells and primroses every year and I used to make the May altar. <laughs> Some people of a certain age will remember that. So I don't know if I remember the first thing I ever grew. Probably nasturtiums.
4: Cabbage. (laughs) I'll never forget it. (laughs) I remember the first thing I grew was watercress and damp cotton wool in uh, recycled yogurt cartons in primary school.
6: In my first house, there was a rockery. And I remember trying to cultivate that with rockery plants, except the slugs were a constant battle So how to keep the slugs
4: off it. You come in at night and you would walk up the path, there'd be a crunch of slugs. The first thing I ever grew. I remember when I was a child, I used to take poppies and poppy seeds and plant them. I think that was what, this is my earliest memory, really, being in my back garden collecting poppy seeds and sprinkling them in the soil.
9: I can't ever remember consciously gardening at all. I certainly would have brought things back when you're preparing the specimen and the seeds fall off the specimen and get into the garden. So I've got various things like that that surfaced in my garden that had no business ecologically being in Dublin even. So they've turned up, but I never actually set out to plant anything.
12: My dad would tell me to just pick out the stones and the, and the scotch, get rid of the scotch, and so that was it. I think it was actually probably garlic when I was in college or something. I got a little bit of land
10: and grew garlic. It was delicious. Probably the best thing I ever grew really successfully was iceberg lettuce.
8: Oh gosh, I think it was shamrock for me. Yeah, shamrock. The flower of the shamrock is yellow, and it's seeded, and I was beside myself until my Italian cousin ate it because she thought it was watercress.
1: Architecture might not be the first thing people associate with the Botanic Gardens, yet the surrounding area features a number of interesting designs. In 1971, the so-called Wigwam Church was built, almost opposite the main entrance to the gardens, to an avant-garde design by Vincent Gallagher. The church's pyramid-like design is echoed in the nearby Met Eireann headquarters on Glasnevin Hill and the Botanic Gardens themselves feature impressive buildings, most notably Richard Turner's spectacular glasshouse. On a warm summer day, Matthew Jebb brought me through the gardens to see the glasshouse and to talk about its construction. This is the
3: curvilinear range, we call it this big, long, low glasshouse. It's 100 metres in length and it is strikingly beautiful. And it is one of the greatest examples of the work of Richard Turner. Turner was an ironsmith working in the south of Dublin, and he was manufacturing glasshouses so light and airy in appearance that they were sought all over Europe. People were buying these glasshouses. He did the glasshouse up in the Belfast Botanic Gardens. Uh, he did the Palm House at Kew, probably one of the, the largest and most iconic uh, glasshouses in the whole of Europe. But it's here in Dublin that it was so important to celebrate his work and the Office of Public Works in 1994 did a faithful restoration of this curvilinear range and put back all of the ironwork and glass to its former splendour, its glory. There's 11 kilometres of glazing bars in this building and it is a, a work of art. It it shows the the skill of engineering and ironwork that made Dublin and Ireland a leader in that field in the middle of the 19th century. So it was begun in 1843 but it took a total of 25 years to put it together. The design, um, the appearance of the glazing bars, the decoration evolved over those 25 years because he was a master craftsman. He was endlessly testing the materials to their limit. He wanted the minimum amount of iron in this building to give it that beautiful, airy and light feeling.
1: There was another interesting building to see, this time with a much older design. Just in the foreground there, we have this amazing
3: Viking house that that we built in the grounds here in 2014. And that celebrated the millennium of the Battle of Clontarf, when people in Dublin, a thousand years ago, were living in houses essentially made of plants. So to educate children about what a historic Dublin house looked like in the 10th century, here it was, it was built from oak, from ash, hazel, and reeds making the roof it's a remarkable insight into how useful plants can be and how minimal the impact of construction work can be. So once upon a time, human beings in Ireland were living in sustainable buildings that were rebuilt every few years from materials from the woodlands. And many people around the world still live in such buildings and they are fantastically in tune with nature.
1: The Gravedigger's Pub, adjoining both Glasnevin Cemetery and the Botanic Gardens, has a long association with the gardens. Today the pub is run by Kieran Kavanagh and Alfreda O'Brien and Alfreda takes up the story of its establishment in 1833 by a man called John O'Neill.
8: He got wind that there was going to be a cemetery built by Daniel O'Connell in prospect square and he bought this beautiful house we believe the house originally was from the 1700s which would link in to the time of the botanics and he bought that house and when they built the original gate for prospect Cemetery, is what it was called then he sold the front part of the house to the cemetery so it became a gate house a lodge house and kept the back of the house almost like the service entrance which is now number one and they lived upstairs And he opened a bar downstairs so that when the corteges of funerals would come up and the gate would be locked and they needed somewhere to get in out of the cold and take shelter, they'd use the bar. The link with the botanics has always been there. One of the biggest connections that we could find was that in the 1870s they opened a new gate on the Fingless Road, and business obviously plummeted. So what they did was they created advertising bills, the old-fashioned type that you hand out. They'd be called flyers today.
1: Many years later, these flyers were found by the current owner, Kieran Kavanagh
5: Kieran Kavanagh from the pub, John great Diggers. Our back garden is about an acre, and it
1: backs onto the Botanic Gardens and the cemetery. And this is where, in an outhouse, Kieran found the old flyers. Alfreda takes up the story
8: they would stand at the new gate of the cemetery directing people down what was the original coach road which goes from the Finglas road right down to the pub and I'll read it out to you it would say visitors to Glasnevin cemetery will find the nearest way to the botanic gardens is by the stile passing by the old cemetery gate which is very interesting and well worth seeing to Cavners old established refreshment bar situated here, famous for superior quality of its drinks, tea, coffee, cheese and meat sandwiches, light refreshments and select private bar attached entrance by the hall door. So this billhead dates from 1878 and they were handed out probably by the hundreds on every Sunday. And it was a new route to Botanic Gardens via the pub. So there's always been that connection.
1: Today, it's still possible to go directly from the pub to the gardens via the cemetery.
8: With the gate that is now open, you can walk along the boundary wall right up to the next gate into the botanics. So all three are linked. And it's such a beautiful walk, like you're in the heart of the city and you, you park your car at Prospect Square and you're kind of going, God, this is heaven, this is just a little haven. Then you walk through the gate and there's beautiful monuments there in, in the cemetery and you pass by all these historical headstones and then you come across what's almost like another secret gate into this other heaven that's the Botanic Gardens.
1: And people have personal links and memories of the gardens
8: in the um, greenhouse that's the spot where my parents got engaged so it's it's really lovely and you think of all the people gone in and out james joyce used to go there to stay warm seemingly uh, is another story that they said i used they go to go to the hot one for- i missed italy oh, when i there came
5: you home go. in uh, yeah. 2005 i'd lived in really hot places and i came home november i think i came home to dublin and i was really really having a bad day and i remember walking into Glasshouse, glass house so i just went in there just like wow the kind of heat yeah. just brought me back. That little bit of solace for those few minutes and then off it went. And that was, you know, one of those places.
1: For Alfreda, the gravediggers will forever be associated with the gardens and the cemetery.
8: I know it's something that we're very proud of. That link with the pub, the cemetery, the botanics. It's a magic triangle. It is like the Bermuda Triangle because you do disappear in that triangle in Nevin. And then before you know it, four hours have passed. It's magic. It's just magic.
1: John Mulhern is the College Principal of Chagask, and I asked him what its role is.
13: Chagask is part and parcel of the training that goes on here in the National Botanic Gardens. We do the formal training in horticulture, so we work in conjunction with the OPW to deliver that training to horticultural trainees. There's a proud history of training students in the Botanic Gardens. It does go back to the 1800s. I'm told that the first reported apprentices were here around 1810, 1812. And even in the room we're sitting, this was a dormitory for apprentices. I'm told by the previous curator there was five or six apprentices used this as their sleeping quarters. So it's a very long history.
1: Today's facilities are very different.
13: We embarked on an adventurous project to build new classrooms, new computer lab, new science lab for our students. So that was completed back in 2012. Now we have room for up to 300 students on site in our classroom facility. It's a very useful and ideal building because it's embedded in the gardens overlooking the Tolka and overlooking the Rose Garden. So it's a real hub of training and education. And that's where we conduct our physical classes.
1: So where do John's pupils end up working?
13: Our remit has been amenity horticulture, but horticulture is both commercial and amenity, and most people being familiar with the amenity world, which is parks, gardens, golf courses, nurseries, landscaping. All of those areas are commonly amenity areas, like the National Botanic Gardens is the obvious amenity. So students work in those areas, but also people will get work and build their own careers and enterprises through the area of commercial horticulture. They may return to their own farm enterprises, they may go in working for larger growers. Horticulture is a very wide sector, it's extremely wide. So yeah there's about 15,000 people working in the horticulture industry. There's quite a heavy presence of horticultural graduates that emanate from here in every aspect of horticultural sector in Ireland.
1: It's not all botany and horticulture at the Botanic Gardens. Music and art also have their places, as Felicity Gaffney, the manager of the visitor centre, explains.
2: We've had a lot of classical music and we've had traditional music. Recently, we've had Contempo Quartet. We've played quite a few times here. We had the Ortiz Symphony Orchestra. We had a little pop-up just yesterday evening. They came in, just three members of the orchestra and they played little short pieces, pop-up pieces, and we went around the gardens and then fill in them. We have ranges of concerts. We have had theatre in the gardens, a lot of outdoor theatre actually, which has worked really well. We've had pop-up cinema actually, only on a very small scale, but we have done it and it's worked really well. Yes, and we're always open to new, exciting ways of engaging the visitor. Uh, One of the things, one of the major exhibitions we have every year, and it's now an annual exhibition, this year it'll be In its 19th year is Sculpture in Context, which is the largest outdoor sculpture exhibition in the country. And it's a wonderful experience because people come every year especially. Often they just come see the exhibition.
1: So what else does Felicity and her team offer?
2: We've quite an extensive cultural programme and we cater for all sorts of visitors right across the visitor profile. So we have drop-by activities, for example, for people with young families who come into the gardens and they into our education garden and they can do little workshops maybe they might plant things up to bring home so there's all sorts of those things we have an extensive schools program for both first and second level and then some people come just on a garden visit and instead of just seeing plants they engage with nature through art and it's a really really amazing lovely experience for people
1: Wildlife abounds in the botanic gardens, where animals, birds and plants coexist, as Matthew Jebb explained during a chat in the popular Vegetable Garden.
3: It's impossible to talk about plants without talking about animals. That the whole point of a flower is it attracts an insect, sometimes a bird, to come visit that flower and in so doing pollinate it. The fruits of many trees and plants in Ireland are dispersed by birds. That's why they're, they're bright red and many of them will taste sweet in the autumn. So this interaction between plants and animals is a very important part of the education we like to give people about the place of plants in our world that they are dependent upon animals and animals in turn are dependent upon plants as are we. So the whole sort of circle of life is something we celebrate here. It's an easy route, if you like, into appreciating the importance of a plant by recognising this is providing food for the wildlife around us. And indeed the Botanic Gardens is a haven for wildlife. We have a huge number of bird species here. Because of the river and the pond down near the river, we have, for example, kingfishers nesting just next door in the Glasnevin Cemetery. So wildlife is very much part and parcel of what goes on in the Botanic Gardens and Indeed, right now we have a pair of buzzards who have been around every morning. I have seen the the buzzards. We have ravens down at the river and the pond. We have kingfishers which, which nest on the banks of the Tolka River. And indeed, we also have a, a dipper nesting just under one of our bridges. A dipper is, is normally a shy bird of, of mountain streams, and it's wonderful to see it Prospering in the Tolka Valley, that it's actually able to raise its young here suggests that the Tolka has come a long way
1: in restoring itself into a healthy river system. Living in the gardens gives Matthew a unique opportunity to observe the wildlife. I asked him what animals he's seen.
3: I have certainly seen otters in broad daylight here, Um, it's every few years an otter will be spotted coming through. Uh, We have a lot of squirrels and that population of grey squirrels has got the the whole expanse of Glasnevin Cemetery next door so between the two of us we have hundreds of acres of quiet woodland if you like with enough food for a large population of grey squirrels. We have a lot of foxes yes and in the snow whenever we have snowfall we can see that the paths that the foxes are using using, they walk straight across the weirs. So they're not too worried about shallow water. They will use that. So they're crossing the river wherever there is a weir. And it there's about three territories. And each spring we will have fox cubs being raised. There are various little areas of shrubberies where the foxes have built their earths. There is a, a real sort of dynamic that makes walking in the gardens not just a delight for a plant lover, but adds to that world of quiet escape from the city.
5: Been through the desert on a horse with no name it felt good to be out of the rain In the desert you
6: can remember
1: your name Naming and classifying things is the science of taxonomy. In the Botanic Gardens this is done by Colin Kelleher. Colin tells us what his work entails. In terms of taxonomy it's really classification or
12: organisation of anything but in this case obviously it's the plants. So we have all the plants in the herbarium, about 600,000 dried specimens flattened in sheets, and they're organized in a particular way. And so the taxonomy is really how these things are organized. It's it's how we organize anything. We need names for everything, because it's very difficult to communicate without names, essentially. And one of the major changes in how we name plants came in the 1700s with Linnaeus. I asked Colin who Linnaeus was. Linnaeus was a Swedish naturalist and botanist in particular, and he was alive in the 1700s and he was huge in terms of how we now classify living organisms. So, what changed back in the 1700s? Around Linnaeus' time, they used to use these polynomials, so they'd have big, long names describing plants, and they were very useful because they described something. They'd say, you know, if I was to describe holly to you, I'd say the the shiny surface with the pointed margins of the leaf, but that's a bit of a mouthful. And what he did then was in his notes in one of his major books on plants, he abbreviated those down to double-barrel names really. So that's we now use these binomials. So they are made up of a genus which links it to a bigger group and a species name then which splits it out as an individual species.
1: The Botanic Gardens has been to the forefront of such study in Ireland for a long time. As Colin explains,
12: in terms of our collection, we have a huge array, really from the early 1800s up to, to today. But in addition, we have tremendous uh, historical collections. And one of the examples I've taken out our register book from 1904. We had a, a whole set of specimens deposited from Franklin's expedition, which was up to the Arctic. There was a number of expeditions by Franklin, and the last expedition was where everybody perished but obviously we have specimens from previous expeditions. I suppose it's a Victorian aspect to this, to the herbarium, you know, we date back to when Britain still ruled Ireland, so we have that history. But the history is absolutely tremendous in terms of the navigation of the world. We have specimens collected from Australia that are first collections, and then we have obviously collections from all over Ireland as well. So we're deeply embedded in in terms of how the natural world was uncovered, really.
1: To conclude, I asked some of our contributors what they'd like to see happening in the future in the Botanic Gardens.
2: To protect biodiversity and to protect our planet. That's what we try to do and that's what we hope to continue doing with the children and with the adults, with everybody, with all the visitors.
4: I would like to see being known even more on in an international stage. We have fantastic collections here and I'd like to bring that more into an international level. So I'm trying to get more of our collections online.
7: The world is changing quite a lot. And despite some of the more negative things that are happening, I think a big positive is that more and more people are paying attention to the natural world. So moving forward, I'd like to see people taking their time and having a nice slow visit to the gardens, really taking it in, making return visits and seeing the changes, sort of slowing down a little bit and savouring the gardens.
2: Well, I'd hope we should keep on the way it is at the moment, and it's really spectacular, and we should be very proud of it. I like the
5: fact that it's free entry. I like the fact that it's available seven days a week. I like the fact that they ring the bell at the end. I like the fact that they're still very much focused on education. I, I love the fact that they do early learning courses. Uh, there was always tradition you couldn't picnic in the, in the Botanic Gardens. You could, had to keep moving kind of thing. You could sit down and think about life, but you couldn't have a dinner. Now people want to have a cappuccino or coffee everywhere they go and they have it in their hands. And, you know, it does impact a little on the environment.
8: We all know how real estate is so valuable. And you always see how estates sell off, we'll sell off this field or we'll put this here. And I think the botanics has to be protected. Or even the bank on the opposite side of the Talca. that's like a floodplain, that should be protected so that it is like a wild meadow. I think in recent years, they have
6: brightened up a lot, a bit more organized and user-friendly. I think they're perfect as they are. I wouldn't like to see them become commercialised or bringing in playgrounds or anything like that. I think as they are, they're, they're,
1: they're good. And we leave the last word to Matthew Jebb. I think one of the most
3: important things that the human race faces is how we are going to live on this finite planet. And one of the things that binds us all together here at the gardens is the importance of conserving plants. And you can only really encourage other people to recognise that if they can empathise with plants, if they can understand plants. So that role of education, we want to bring the thrill of the plant world to people so that even if at the end of a year, only half a dozen or a dozen people leave this place convinced they want to get into horticulture or botany or some other plant science, where we are doing a massively important job.
1: The Bots was produced and edited by Brian Gallagher. Our thanks to all those who took part in the project. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee.
0: Has your fuse box gone haywire? Is your water pressure too weak? Or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade. They don't last forever, you know. Well, the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that. So if you're locked out on a Thursday and need a locksmith, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. DNC's apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details.